Hello and welcome to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast, where we take a look at interesting topics and what we think they tell us about analysis and decision-making. My name's Fraser McGrewer, and I'm here with Nick Hare and Peter Coggill of Aleph Insights. And today we're going to take a look at the American primary elections for their candidate for president. Specifically, I want to take um, a look at Donald Trump, who, who sort of no one thought he had any chance at all. And he's come out of nowhere. And now he is a serious contender for becoming the Republican nomination for the presidential election. Specifically, I think we want to take a look at this in terms of uncertainty and what it tells us about uncertainty. No one expected this to happen. So, uh, Nick, can you start us off? Yeah, I think I don't think uh, I, it's probably not true to say nobody expected it to happen. But I think you know it was it wasn't something that was totally unconsidered. I mean, uh, it, but but you, you know it's only in the last couple of years. You know that that I think uh, from what I understand it that Donald Trump has been interested in the idea and uh, you know through a series of events has ended up in a position where he appears to be leading uh, the the Republican um, primaries. Uh, so that, you know, is surprising point. The, the point about this is it's sort of surprising. And um, the question is, with, to what extent you can predict things like this with better information? So uh, the um, elections are a nightmare for, for predictions because we loads and loads of data. We always have loads of data on uh, polling, uh, you know, what, what people say they're going to vote. And uh, for, we're continually surprised. I mean, in the last UK election... Um, all the polls said it was going to be a hung parliament. So in other words, there wasn't going to be a party uh, which had the majority of uh, MPs. And then in the end, the Conservatives got a majority. It was, I mean, pretty pretty much unforeseen. Um, and the question is, what kinds of uncertainty are in play here? And I think the trouble is that people confuse two very distinct types of uncertainty. One is uh, statistical uncertainty, and one is model uncertainty, or uncertainty about the way the world works. Um, so the statistical uncertainty is essentially saying, are we, is the poll that we've just taken a good and fair sample of, of uh, the whole population? Um, you know, we know that if we're only asking a thousand people, we, we know that there's a chance that actually that we might have picked a thousand people who are kind of more conservative or more Labour. And mm. you can kind of work out what the, what that, how big that uncertainty is. Yeah. Um, and I think that encourages people to think that they've sort of bounded what uncertainty we have. But actually, the really big uncertainty uh, is about the connection between how what people say in opinion polls and what they actually do on polling day. And that seems to be where most of the uncertainty is. And yet, yet people always cling to opinion polls and, and think that they have more information than they do. So, sorry, so that uncertainty you talked about there then, is that uncertainty to do with the model then? Well, yeah, I mean, in other words, uncertainty about the way the world works. So okay. what we really don't know is that that connection between how people answer opinion polls and what they actually do, whether they vote at all, and then if they do vote, you know, who they vote for. That's where nearly all of the uncertainty about election forecasting comes in. And we, we're inclined to uh, to forget about that, to focus on the statistical uncertainty and kind of ignore the fact that actually opinion polls don't give us very good information about behaviour. Okay. So um, that being the case then, Peter, so do we just give up then and go, well, there's no point polling? Um, I think there's, there, there is a point in polling, but polls need to be perhaps designed differently and different data can be collected um, from different um, sample populations. Um, 
and that that would improve that would potentially improve polling. Um, but I think there are all sorts of inherent biases in the way that selections are made, um, the, pe the people that, that are asked the questions, uh, and the types of questions that are asked, um, uh, often carry a, a, either a deliberate or a, a, a sort of accidental agenda with them. Um, but there, I think there are there, there are there's it's a, it's a well-defined problem that uh, people's behaviours differ from their opinions, um, and so what, what people say they're going to do is radically different from what they usually end up doing. But I, I'm guessing that no one is more aware of this issue and this problem than pollsters, right? So I presume that they've got lots of very clever people um, sitting around working out how to reduce this discrepancy between pe what people report and what they actually do. Um, is that the case? And do you know of instances? What I mean, what are they doing about this? Yeah, yeah, I mean, the, or opinion polls, uh, opinion pollsters are living, in, it's still living really in the shadow of the Literary Digest poll uh, in 1936, which sought to uh, work out which of... Um, uh, Alf Landon and uh, Franklin Roosevelt would, would win the election. And it's a famous study in polling because they they chose who they were going to ask from lists of in the phone book and uh, lists of club membership and that sort of thing. And of course, you know, only really only middle class people had phones and were members of clubs and things. So it showed that Alf Landon was was going to win. Um, and and if, of course, the fact that nobody's heard of him tells you that he didn't. Um, these days, there's all kinds of techniques that pollsters use to make sure that statistical uncertainty is minimized. So, you know, that we've we've got a good sample that, you know, if the polls are made, they deliberately randomize, you know, to, to try to make sure that they are asking people in a way that is completely uncorrelated with any of their characteristics. You know, that's, that's where selection bias comes from. If the method you're using to choose people um, is in some way correlated to something about them, then then that's where you're going to get selection bias. And they use all sorts of techniques. You know, they'll randomise the order in which they'll ask people questions. They'll, they'll present the candidates in randomised orders, uh, all, all sorts of things to try and eliminate that. But, but uh, you know, as I said, I think that the problem is that actually we a poll even if we knew what perfectly what people say they're going to do that still only gives us some information about how they're going to behave and and most of the uncertainty uh, is actually not the statistical kind so peter so still we've got that gap so why what is what is it i mean i'm i'm no sociologist i don't know so why is it that someone reports something then does something something else? I I I I'm not sure. I think that it's it's it's, pro, it's a very well studied subject, um, but it's just something that we do. You know, we, we when it when it comes down to the down down to the moment, we we often do something different, or we want to satisfy we want to satisfy some uh, desire of the person who's asking the question, so we'll go along in some way. But there's I think there's lots of different reasons it happens. I think potentially better predictors are um, historical studies and moral development of people's past behaviours. So an example might be um, if you could uh, harvest a lot of social media data from Facebook and Twitter and things about what people did, where they went, who they interact with, mm -hmm. that would potentially give you much better uh, models of what kind of person they are, which then may correlate well with how they eventually would vote, mm -hmm. rather than asking their opinion. So don't involve their opinion at all, cut that out, just go on historical data about what they have done. The, the, the big limitation there, of course, well, I mean, particularly uh, here in the UK, thanks to the pesky chartists, we don't know what people have voted. That, that's the problem. So we can't link people's characteristics to their actual, to their actual voting behaviour. We, we have to go on what they say. But what is interesting is that exit polls are 
always phenomenally, you know, more reliable than than any polls leading up to the election. I think that says something quite interesting. People people uh, do not lie about what they have done, but they may be mistaken about what they're going to do. Um, you know, so so actually, uh, I, I you know, we were speculating on why does wider wider people's uh, you know expressed thoughts differ from their behaviour. And my my background is uh, you know I'm a, I'm an economist, and um, economists do not trust anything people say. You know, the people in order to conduct experiments about how people behave when you change the conditions they're in, we really only look at behaviour. We don't ask people stuff you know we, we put them in situations where they they have incentives to behave in certain ways um, but you what you can't do uh, when you're studying e- uh, economics is look at what people say because it, it just you know for all sorts of reasons people don't even know themselves it's not even that people are, are consciously lying about what they're going to do it's it, it's also the the fact that they themselves their own behavioral preferences are not necessarily transparent to them mm-hmm. so it's only yeah and no, it's interesting that i guess something doesn't happen until it's happened right and that's the only that's the only sort of real test right um yeah i don't think that was a particularly clever point or question but <laughs> thank you thank you um okay well look anything else you want to say I, i'm gonna round this off by turning it back to donald trump which is where we started but before i do that anything else you want to say about this well it's a bit it's, a, it's off topic from uh, the the other thing but it does relate to sort of decision making so consider the decisions of the voters who are who are voting for trump uh, I think there's a, a particularly interesting uh, quality to the types of language, the rhetoric that tr- Trump uses. Mm. Um, there's a brilliant website called Politifact, which mm. um, take, breaks uh, down uh, what politicians have said uh, and does fact check to see mm-hmm. to, to see whether or not how, how how true or how false those statements mm-hmm. are. Trump broadly um, scores pretty poorly compared to his. His, his the 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 other the other the other um, runners, mm-hmm. um, uh, and it's I think I think it's sort of looking at the looking at the language. I think it's to do with the sort of rhetorical vagaries in the language he chooses to use, yeah. which gives the gives his um, his speeches more more sort of um, they're generally more attractive to more people because yeah. they can mean many more things to lots more people. Sure. They're, they're light on fact. They're light on specifics, so they're very general um, or hand-waving uh, sort of comments. Whereas if you compare him with um, with uh, Obama or, or Clinton in, in in the other primaries, they are very fact-driven and very evidence-driven because they they're talking about things they have done and things that are that they, that, you know demonstrably true. But that's okay. that's less that's less interesting. It's more boring. Well, Phil, I'm going to come to you in a moment nick but um but that sort of reminds me I, I recently saw a youtube video which pr- provided some analysis of of one of his short speeches and it was it was more or less as you've just said it's it's the way he speaks is very simple um i think and, and you mentioned the word um rhetoric i mean he is a study in 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 rhetoric and the way he speaks it, it, very short sentences is very very simple to understand lots of repetition and lots of repetition of key words uh, sorry, and I forgot to say, very short words as well. Um, and he always seems to end, his sentence, sentences often end on a similar word, like that is often a negative word as well. 
which seems to sort of get drilled into the into the mind of of the of the listener and just one of the points it made in this in this in this film was that there's maybe you're familiar there's been a study made of the reading age of who could understand a trump speech who could understand a, a clinton speech and, and all other politicians and his is really i don't really understand the american grading system but his was i think six-year-olds could understand it whereas with with clinton you need to be at least eight let's say so um yeah uh, nick you wanted to come in yeah, I just well, I want to kind of defend that a bit. I mean, I think I think uh, you know, and I'm not certainly not speaking up for Donald Trump particularly, but but the question is why we expect why we should expect politicians to make truthful claims. Mm. I think it's sort of the fairest thing to say about Donald Trump is he doesn't really make claims. Um, you know, it's not and and that isn't his appeal is not based on the fact that he's saying things that are true. Um, I, I I actually think there's an argument for voting on personality. Um, uh, you know, it's not not one I'd be particularly attached to. But what you can say is, you know, the politicians can't foresee all the things that are, that are going to happen, um, you know, in the next four years. So so voting on personality is a way of saying, well, uh, you know, I, I actually just want someone in charge whose values I share and who is going whatever, you know, we're not going to hold them to their manifesto necessarily. But we we kind of think that they'll do things that we'll support when they're in when they're in in place. Um, so I, I think you know it's, there's this assumption I think that we we should hold politicians to account for things that they say and for you know not following through on their manifesto. Um, I I don't know if that's necessarily actually the the ideal situation. Well, I'd just like to say two things there. First of all, I'm glad no one holds me to account for the things that I say publicly, and then turns around and say, well, hold on, you didn't do this because there's probably about you know don't tell my wife about this kind of stuff because i'm sure i still haven't done the washing up from this morning but um that's the first thing the second i'm astonished to hear you say that actually because i thought i was looking at myself because this is the kind of thing you often pick me up on and then i'm saying oh look, it's all just too complicated there's all these decisions all this analysis all this data and stuff oh let's just kind of go with you know it's a binary decision let's go with that one it'll be fine so i'm really surprised to hear you say that and i'm glad that i've managed to convince you of my approach in life so that's good i'm going to wrap up there so any final things you want to say before we finish no? Okay, so this has been another episode of the Cognitive Engineering Podcast. Thank you once again for joining myself, Fraser, and Nick and Peter at LF Insights. Goodbye for now. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.